Well, the psalmist <clears throat> tells us that truly God is good. And I think we've had many reminders this past couple of weeks through answer to prayer requests uh, and even this past week of taking time just to thank God for many blessings that he has given us. I hope that you have taken time to do that. It's just a good way to strengthen our faith and to feel our joy up in him. And if you haven't done that this past week, then you got another week. So good thing is God doesn't change and uh, we get another week to rejoice and be thankful for all that he's given to us. Um, before we look at our text this morning in John chapter 4, so as you're finding your place there, there are many people traveling over the next now and over the next week or so. Uh, December the 11th, uh, that Sunday morning service, uh, Perry Jones will be here from Albany Rescue Mission, and uh, so looking forward to having him come. He'll be uh, preaching that morning service, so uh, you want to be praying for him and uh, make a plan to um, hear him that morning. Uh, and and help Ben. Ben's graciously asking for help on Saturday, I think. It's a good way of saying that if you want to go. If you've never been to Albany Mission, uh, it's a great, great uh, day to go uh, to hang up lights and see a tour of the place. And they work really hard. And I think they eat sometime throughout the day, I'm sure. But uh, it's, a good, um, it's a good Saturday to, to spend preparing for Christmas. John chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse number 1, so if you would just follow along with me, we'll read down to verse number 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave to us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not, or that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is, your, is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Father, what a great word you have given to us here in the Gospel of John in this fourth chapter. What a great reminder of of just your saving work. Lord, we pray that you speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. A very familiar passage of Scripture and very... um, when I say heartwarming, don't think I'm making less and thinking of this in a devotional way, but it is a very heartwarming narrative as we see Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. Jesus embodies the words about himself that he has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And sometimes this saving work, as we see repeatedly throughout the Gospels, is surprising, isn't it? In fact, we might say it's always surprising in one way or another if we thought about it clearly and rightly, but there are moments when God's grace is quite surprising. Jesus walking by a tax collector's booth and looks at one of the gentlemen there and to Matthew and he says, come and follow me. Uh, and Matthew leaves his, leaves his job, leaves his post and becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ, giving us that great glorious work, the gospel according to Matthew. There are other times when we are overwhelmed or we're shocked literally by God's saving work and the grace he so freely gives to people throughout the Bible. Paul of Tarsus, a violent and um, enemy of the gospel of Christ, and yet you find on the road to Damascus here the grace of God just arrests him, stops him on the way and, and confronts him and redeems him. The narrative in front of us is one of the more shocking ones than it is the surprising. As you go through this, we, are, uh, we, we stand back as we look at the context of just how great God's grace is and how freely he gives it to people. How great it is and how freely he gives it to people. And in one ways, we look at this narrative and we are reassured uh, in our own faith about his, his saving work and his kindness to us and for some of us it may be a word of hope uh, where you are right now and you're standing before God well the narrative itself is one of the longest or the longest uh, discussions Jesus has with any one person and the name of the woman is not given to us It is here that we are confronted with one of the longest narratives in the gospel record 
uh, going from verse number 1 all the way to verse number 45. We won't deal with all of it this morning. We'll, we'll look at just this first part uh, today and then pick it up again next week. Um, and it is also here, interestingly, that Jesus' first claim in the Gospel of John to be the Messiah. You see that in verse 26, don't you? As she says, the Messiah will come, the one who is called Christ. He will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible or a King James Version or some other translation, your Bible may have he in italics stating that the editors put that in the, in the translation so that we might have an understanding of what he's saying because... Uh, it's hard for us to understand, I who speak to you am. And yet throughout the Gospel of John, we are reminded Jesus constantly referring to himself as the I am. This is one of those uh, statements we find in the narrative. But there's something all, also fascinating about John chapter number 4. Taken as a whole between chapters 3 and 4, there's a great contrast for us. Uh, between two individuals, that of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. They could be no further apart or no, no more opposite than what the, the Bible shows to us here. And, and it's, it's reaffirming for you and me this morning that Jesus is no respecter of persons. Do you believe that? That Jesus is no respecter of persons? I know we affirm those things, and, and at times we say those things, we're thankful for those things, but there's something about seeing contrast that really paints that picture for us, isn't there? Nicodemus, who is a man, who is a, a, uh, a devout Jew, he is a leading theologian, um, and a Pharisee, very, very zealous about the law. He has a, a respect of his peers and of his countrymen. He is someone that parents would tell their kids, be more like Nicodemus. Look how good of a man he is, how morally clean and, and we might say squeaky clean Nicodemus is. And yet here's the Samaritan woman. Her name is not even given to us. Uh, she is a woman in her day. On top of that, she is a Samaritan a heretic as it comes to the law of God and one who would be the opposite example your mother would tell you or your father would tell you don't be like that woman over there who's wasted her life and, and all the things that you find there uh, going on with her. Well, Jesus shows us both this desperate need and Nicodemus's life of needing to be born again. And then he shows us in the Samaritan woman that there is no far too gone that the grace of God cannot reach. Nicodemus was uh, seeking Jesus in the middle of the night or in the dark and, and conversing with him. And the woman was found by Jesus in the middle of broad daylight. And so it is with this we find in our text this reminder of what Jesus has come to do, seeking to save those who are lost. We begin uh, the narrative with some of the plans of Jesus, and we end this story with this great confession found in verse number 42. Just look over there with me. 
Because on the surface of this, we, we look at the woman at the well as an unexpected conversion. Not just the woman at the well, but the whole Samaritan city that's coming out in the town hearing Jesus and this great confession that they make in verse number 42. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Isn't that remarkable? It's remarkable for one reason, and that is the Jews saw the signs that Jesus did, and they sought a conference from him. Nicodemus saw his mighty works, and so he wanted to talk to him. The Samaritans did not see anything Jesus did other than hear his own words, and yet they believed. Again, showing the contrast of his own nation who would ultimately reject him and the world and the multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation who would come and confess Jesus Christ to the Lord as Lord to the glory of God the Father through the preaching of the word of God. Now, again, we won't cover this narrative all today just for the sake of time. It's hard enough to get our, our arms around someone's testimony. It's almost best to let them tell it for themselves, but I want to give you just a few things before we begin this to help us work through this passage. The first is the passage itself, the narrative, is revealing something to us primarily about Jesus. There's a lot of interesting facts and things going on here, but John is trying to convey to us through Jesus' words, his actions, his offer of grace, something about the Messiah. We don't want to miss that. Uh, and The climax is seen both in Jesus' own confession of himself in verse number 26 and the Samaritan's uh, confession of him here in verse 42, as we already looked at. He is wanting us, and it's our primary task when we read a passage like this, to see what kind of Savior John is showing us and what kind of grace he is revealing to us. But secondly, I, I think we find in this narrative in this story that we are invited as we consider what's going on with this woman at the well we're invited to consider our own lives we're not just in the bible just for history lessons and and just for facts it is pressing upon our own life that happens when we hear testimonies doesn't it we hear someone testify about god's grace and how he worked in their life and transformed them in that in that process of hearing that, we are we're invited to rejoice with God, to be amazed at what he can do, but also invited to consider where we stand before God. That this offer of living water that's extended to this woman and the grace and gifts extended to this woman are likewise extended to us. As we read this passage, it's not only a fascinating, but it's cause for us to evaluate and to consider our own lives. And to receive the benefit in which Jesus offers. And for those who have received the benefit of grace and salvation, it is for us to rejoice and be encouraged as we're in the ministry of reaching others with the gospel message. And I would say thirdly, not only is it primarily about Christ, secondly, it offers an invitation to look at our own lives, but thirdly, there is in this a pattern or a help for the church at times 
as we follow our Lord's example and minister his word to a world in need. Well, let's look at the text together. I felt like a rather long introduction, but anyway, let's look at the text together beginning with verse number 1. The beginning of this, verses 1 through 6, is really a, a introduction or a setup. Setting up the, the narrative as John typically does, the last few verses of this gives us a transition. And when he sets up, I think what we see first is Jesus is intentional in what he does. He's intentional. Look at it beginning verse number 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although he did, um, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, beginning of this, he introduces this transition from where they were in in uh, Judah, baptizing. They were they were preaching the gospel. Jesus was preaching the gospel. His disciples were baptizing. And it was there that the ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist were kind of parallel. And there was question tensions between the disciples and the, and the Jews there. And so Jesus making the decision to move his ministry back to Galilee. He had been down for the Passover and he's going back to Galilee to continue on uh, the ministry. And a lot of people ask the question, why move now? You're, you're going from a more popular, a more sophisticated, a, a more prominent place of ministry to Galilee, which is like the outskirts and, and really not a, not a pleasant place to transition to. And yeah, I think there's something here to understand that Jesus never moves without intention. He's never in the business of just being busy. It's a good reminder to us that ministry in itself ought to have some intention to it. Uh, that many times we can be busy about many things and not actually accomplish or do anything. But that was not the case with Christ, nor the case with God. Now, the issue here is the Pharisees uh, that heard of Jesus' ministry, and some suggest maybe Jesus is leaving the area because there was friction there and would have caused great problem. I just want to make two statements towards that. We don't know why exactly Jesus left, but two things so that we can affirm that Jesus leaving Judah was not because he feared anybody. He was not leaving because his operation was an operation out of fear. He was not scared of the Pharisees. He was not scared of the people uh, and what they might do to him. But secondly, in Jesus, in all that he did, he did, he carried out not to do his own will, but to the will of his Father. So here, Jesus' decision to go from Judea to Galilee was him obeying the will of his Father. He is returning at the command, at the direction, at the leading and guiding of his Father. So he leaves Judah departing again from Galilee. There's a kind of awkward statement John wants us to see in verse number two. Jesus did not baptize, but only his disciples. And I guess he's making that statement because some might say, well, I was baptized by Jesus and you weren't. And so there may have been some superiority there. We don't know. 
Nevertheless, he's wanting us to understand Jesus was not baptizing and he is going to Samaria. But notice the point that he draws us to in verse number four. He said he had to pass through Samaria. Or as the King James says, I must needs go through Samaria. And that's a big must. It's a big must because geographically and and traditionally, uh, Jews would go east and then they would go north and kind of go around Samaria because they would avoid being contaminated or defiled religiously through uh, their dealings with Samaria. It was a long journey to go all the way around uh, and the straightest route from Judah to Galilee was through Uh, Samaria but many people despise the Samaritans so badly that they would not desire to step foot in their country. Now Carson argues that uh, many people still did prefer the shorter route but nevertheless there was this animosity here Uh, but the best route to go was through Samaria but I don't think he's speaking here about his must or his appointment being that of geography but rather that of of his divine appointment with this woman. I must go through Samaria, something his disciples would not understand till later on, and something that we are invited to see here, that he has a divine appointment at noon at the well, and Jacob's well. God is leading his servant along. He's being obedient, making his decisions based upon the will of God and God's direction in his life. I want to say just for us and by way of just encouragement that God does not work aimlessly. It's not just a matter of Jesus going from point A to point B and just all the kind of random things that may happen in between there. And we didn't know, the disciples didn't know all the outcome that would be in this trip. They didn't know why he must go through Samaria. We're given some insight to that. But, but we can see through this example that even in our own life that God does not work aimlessly. He's not just kind of doing stuff just to be doing stuff in your life because he's bored and, and you're kind of fun to mess with. Now some of us, if we're honest, it sort of feels that way, doesn't it? Just move a piece here and just see if you notice it, Ed, or something like that, you know. And and God is working in our life providentially, graciously with a purpose. And how often we have seen that play out and how blessed we've been by many of those appointments that God has arranged for us. Bringing people into your life when you've needed it. Uh, bringing you to, to certain places and certain situations to where you were in need and your, your soul was refreshed or ministered to or helped by or in those areas by God's grace that, that you were a means of helping someone else. Uh, life is a lot like that, walking with the Lord, isn't it? Walking in fellowship with him as the church we're walking in obedience we don't know the outcome of every step and every action but we know and we have that assurance and that confidence that that it isn't aimlessly it's not pointless god is in control and and the steps of a good man are ordered by the lord the bible tells us and we could say a good woman too we will say a good woman too 
And so first, I want us to understand, and I think it's clear even in this passage, it's not just a random act that Jesus is going through and he's concerned about Judah. He's concerned every step of the way following the Lord, trusting, uh, trusting his father as he is going through Samaria. He must needs go. He has an appointment at noon. You may be saying that too. Hurry up. I must needs go. I have an appointment at noon. But the second thing I want us to notice here is that um, there's a genuineness to the ministry of Christ. There's no pretense. I don't know how it is sometimes that we in the church or the church and denominations and big committees get together and we're so fascinated with numbers and and fascinated with, with goals or outcomes or those things like that. And we miss the genuineness in, in the ministering to people. But you don't see that in Jesus' ministry. Well, there's a great multitude that's gathered around, and sometimes what you find is when the crowds get larger, he thins them out with some message about eating my body and drinking my blood. But in all cases, his work, his, his ministry here on earth is to people. He sees them for what they are, image bearers of God, and it's a good reminder for us as we look at this this encounter together. Now you notice here in verse number four, they had to pass through Samaria. Uh, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. This was about a, about a mile from Shechem. You probably don't know where that's at either. I don't either. You can Google it. Um, a very famous area in the Old Testament. It was given to Joseph as an inheritance from Jacob. Joseph's body would have been buried there. It was the same two mountains where the uh, Moses divided the people, and some would be on one mountain, some on the other mountain. They'd holler out blessings and curses as they entered into the promised land. It was this region uh, where this town was, so about, about a half a mile from the well of Jacob, which is still there and still, still has water, they tell me. Anyway, it's here that Jesus has come. And Jesus is tired, and so he sends his disciples on to get some food as he takes a rest at the middle of the day, noon. I know I like to read on and skip stuff really quick. Maybe you do too, but isn't there some comfort in the fact that Jesus gets tired? And sometimes we think we want a Superman that's, that, 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 that never wears out, and yet here we find the simple words of Jesus needed rest. And so he knows our needs and our needs of rest. But nevertheless, we go on. He continues, he comes there. And then with all of this going on, a woman comes, verse number 7, from Samaria and came to draw water. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Now, doesn't that seem so natural? If you're in a desert place and it's hottest part of the day and a woman comes, you have no cup, you have no bucket, you have no water, the well's 100 feet deep. Don't you think you would ask, woman? Give me a drink of water. Well, you might think so. In our world, we might do that. But it's almost as if Jesus is completely oblivious to any social norm, any status quo of his day in that one question. It is so shocking that Jesus would ask a drink of water from this woman. As he says, woman, now you remember that's the same word he calls his mother. It's not a sign of disrespect. It is a sign of proper ma'am or something like that in those terms. He says, ma'am, give me a drink 
of water. Well, if Jesus didn't get the, uh, get the note that you're not supposed to do that, the woman of Samaria knew that, and she goes on and corrects him. Verse number 9. Samaritan woman said, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Uh, last statement in verse number um, verse number nine really is for Jews. It could be stated they don't share the same utensils as Samaritans, or drink from the same vessels, drink from the same cup. I took our conference speaker out to dinner, him and his wife, as they came in on Thursday of a uh, week before last, and we went to restaurant and they mixed our drinks up. So he took a drink of his, and he said, well, take a drink of yours and see if you got mine. So I took a drink of mine. He says, you want to trade? I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't want to trade. <laughs> you took a drink of yours, and so, you know, uh, no, I'm, I'm good, bro, thanks. Uh, I love you. I pray for you. I don't want to drink after you. <laughs> but you see what the woman's saying is, and Calvin, as he, as he interprets all of this passage of Scripture, the woman is somewhat indignant as she is answering Jesus, saying, you, a man, a Jew, aren't I unclean? You remember? You remember what you say and you teach your children? Stay away from Samaria, and, and not only Samaria, but the women of Samaria are perpetually unclean. There is no moment where they're not, uh, where they're not in that condition. And you're going to ask me for a drink of water. That's crazy, isn't it? You see the heart of prejudice and racism. Piper, preaching through this passage, says it's like, it's like going back to segregation and those two water fountains, blacks and whites. And let those get mixed up. Would the whites go take a drink from the blacks' water fountain? Or would the blacks go take a drink from the whites' water fountain? It just was a, it, it did not happen. And yet Jesus, despite all the history and all of the, all of the hatred and all of the, the despise between these group of peoples, reaches out because this is a woman created in the image of God who has an eternal soul, and so he ministers to her. Now, if you want history about the dispute, you can go back in your Old Testament right after Solomon, right after his death and his son received the kingdom the kingdom tore in half uh, and ever since then there was division you want to get that <laughs> sorry <laughs> that's awful it wasn't in my notes anyway 722 the uh, the assyrians captured the northern ten tribes and led them off into captivity. He left there the weak and the despised, the poor, and he brought in foreigners. And so the land filled with people who were half Jew and half foreigners, and they not only were defiled in their ethnicity in that way, they were also uh, they were also defiled in their religion. They began worshiping not only Jehovah but also all these other pagan elements in their worship and so it was just a mess and so the jews considered them unclean and rejected them completely from the house it was so bad that the greatest insult that the pharisees could do to jesus was call him a samaritan you're a samaritan 
And yet Jesus breaks down every barrier there is to save this woman. In fact, we find some joy or some hope in that, don't we? Because he breaks down. He is the very thing that unites us and brings us together. From every social class, every, uh, every, um, every ethnicity, man, woman, child, grandparent, mom, dad, single person, the thing that unites us together isn't, isn't all the things that we tend to put so much stock in. The thing that, that brings us together even in this day, as it was in Jesus' day, is Jesus Christ himself. Is the foundation of this church's unity. I mean, we may like the ministry center and, 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 and enjoy that ministry together and have a common bond. And I hope we do because it's a ministry of the church. But the thing that unites us is the heart behind that. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and it compels us to really be a lot like Jesus Christ, and that is overcoming those barriers through the gospel to reach out and see people for who they are, people created in the image of God. Our country has struggled with that kind of divisive hatred. We've come a long way with it. We might think about it in black and white, but it's really... It's really, there's a hatred in all sorts of areas in our life, not just in prejudice in that way. And yet here we're instructed by Jesus and modeled by Jesus of one who comes breaking down barriers to save a soul. People don't ask Samaritans for a drink of water. Jews don't ask Samaritans for a drink of water. Men don't ask women for a drink of water. I read one commentary said men didn't even talk to their wives in public, let alone a woman that they weren't married to. Some of you would be like, let's go back to the Bible days, right? <laughs> I wouldn't suggest it. So some of you ladies, your husband's more biblical than you thought, right? <laughs> so <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> and so he asked this woman for a drink of water because he sees her as an image bearer of God. Yeah, ask you folks, do you see the, the, the woman that waits on you at the restaurant and got your order wrong as an image bearer of God? You see that grouchy person at the place that you frequent, whether in town or out of town? I'm, that's as far as I'm going with that illustration, as an image bearer of God. You see that family member, that in-law? That's a hard one, isn't it? As an image bearer of God, created in God's image. As we find God's compassion so lavishly poured out on our life, does it not stir our own hearts to be more compassionate and loving to those who are around us? And Jesus reaching out to this woman, asking her for a drink of water, engaging in this conversation is, is a radical and, and gracious work which he has come to do because he has come to do more than just ask her for a drink of water. He has come to give her everlasting life that's really what he says you think that's shocking basically is what he's saying here in verse number 10 if you think it's shocking me asking you for a drink of water from one of your cups or your jar your vase vase wherever you're from he says in verse number 10 if you knew the gift of god and who it is saying to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would give you living water 
Our Lord is so gracious and so masterful in bringing the conversation back to our greatest needs. Not just in his own need in the moment, but foregoing his need for the greater joy and fulfillment of meeting hers. He, who was thirsty and tired, began to minister to this woman. Now let me just make a few statements here as we look at this gift of everlasting water. He says, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that's saying to you, you would say, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And some of you that have studied this over your lifetime and, and over the years, you're reminded in the Old Testament that water, especially moving water, is, is, is a, really a grace, a life-giving grace of God. And we see in Jeremiah, it is a rebuke of God to his people Israel who have, have rejected the supply or the life that God gives and they've traded it for, for junk. For death, really. And he says, be appalled, O heavens, in Jeremiah chapter 2, at this. And be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewned out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The nation of Israel, Judah, Samaria, the Greeks, the Romans, you and me, we have spent our life hewing out cisterns, digging out cisterns that are unable to give us life. Ecclesiastes is a whole reminder of the many, many ways you and I have sought to fulfill and satisfy and give substance to this life and yet at the end of the day find it as meaningless or empty because it can never do that. We build houses, we collect stuff, we, we, we go places, we achieve stuff, we, we marry, we, we experiment, we do all the things that, that can be done in the human experience to try to give us something. Then we turn to spiritualism and idolatry and give ourselves in many other ways. And at the end of the day, we are continually turning to those things which bring death and not life. How many people all over the world this week and, and even on day like today are standing behind some temple or at some altar trying to ask for help and plead for life and, 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 and something and, and they're turning to emptiness. And he says, Israel, this is what you have done. You've traded life. You've traded substance. You've traded the very heartbeat. I... I, I raised you up, I delivered you from Egypt, I carried you, I've committed myself to you, and you've traded me and my presence and what I give for, well, for nothing. And to use Ezekiel's language, Ezekiel's language, you've traded it for manure. Well, you get the point, right? Here is a woman herself caught up in that reality who, who's searching and, and living this life, feeling the repercussions of trying to find life and, and what the world has and in the world's ways. And at the end of the day, it's, it's empty and meaningless and it's devastating. I had a family member at one time lived in a holler. Does anyone know what a holler is? It's, it's what you do when you're trying to get your kids' attention. 
No, it's a place you live. I don't even know how to explain it. If you know, you know, I guess. Um, you can't find it on a map or a satellite. You just get there. You turn at the tree and, you know, directions are funny too. But nevertheless, and they lived up on this mountain. The house, well, it was, it was like one of those, it could be a scary movie house. But anyway, they had this cistern up on the mountain. And so they collected water there. And it would come and it would feed the house. And I remember one day me and someone went to look in it and found frogs and some other stuff. I thought, I'm never, ever, ever drinking water at this house again. (laughs) I mean, we just drink water and we don't even think about it. Dear friends, that is what the world offers. Contaminated, polluted. It it, it is in itself destroying us. The American dream and its pursuit is in itself destroying us. Ripping the very life, the very hope that we have for anything away from us. Is there elements good, bad? Well, if that's all we're pursuing, it is all, it is all harmful and dangerous. We know that from Flint, Michigan and their water supply, from the water supply in Mississippi this year, that if we intake that that disease and that that dirt, then it will destroy us. And he's saying to this woman, this is what Israel's done. This is what they've turned to. But what grace God points us to in Isaiah 55 when he says, whoever thirsts can come to the waters and drink and buy bread, wine without money and without price. You see... This woman at the well, the water she was familiar with, not only in the natural sense, but in the spiritual sense, was continually bringing her back to empty. And Jesus says, if you knew me and the gift of God, then you could have this water springing up to everlasting life. Notice back in verse number 10 with me he says Jesus answered her if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you give me a drink you would have asked him and you would have he would have given you living water you see the two things he says there if you knew the gift of God and Christ which I think are synonymous. It's the same thing he's saying. And if you would ask, how simple is that? Uh, we, we see the emptiness in Jeremiah, the, the condemnation of all mankind, we, the futility that we have been subjected to in this world. But he, but he says to this woman, and what we find out, a woman that he well knows her history and past, he says to this woman, but if you knew me and you knew the, the gift of God, and if you would but just ask, then you could have this life-giving water, the gift of salvation. And it is found in knowing Christ, isn't it? Michael Staten last week was so... Uh, did such a good job reminding us that we are to know God. That knowledge of God, which we are to be strengthened in, reminded in. And I want to say this today, that the only way we come to truly know God and the gift which God has given to us is to know Christ because it's one and the same. 
If you truly knew the gift of God, and isn't that the tough part of the world? If your loved one, if your your granddaughter or your grandson or your son or your daughter, if your cousin or nephew, if they truly knew the gift of God, then they would ask. Then they would ask and it would be given to them. Here you see this knowledge that must must come, this understanding of the gift of God, knowledge of the gospel and who Christ is. But there's also this exercise of faith here in verse number 10. You would have asked him. You know, in Hebrews chapter number 11, we read that faith confesses that God exists and he has rewarded those who seek him. Dear friends, do you have that confidence that you can come before God seeking him and he will be found by you? Despite what your past looks like, despite what your present looks like, that that you can seek him and he can be found by you? The wondrous joy of that is because he is the one seeking you, is what Jesus said. You would ask, Well, there's a simple application to that, I think, isn't it? Have you asked? Do you know the gift of God? Have you experienced this life-giving water, this water welling up or springing up, bubbling up unto everlasting life? Now, there's a bit of comedy here, and we won't get into it today. We'll look at it as we consider those who worship God, worship him in spirit and truth, uh, that this woman doesn't get it. Does she? I mean, she goes on. The woman said to him, you have nothing to draw with. You're talking about water. The well is deep. Where are you getting the living water from? You're asking me for a drink of water. She doesn't get it. Maybe there's a little sarcasm in their voice. I don't know. Where are you holding it? Where are you hiding it at? Why are you asking me for water if you've got this water that you have to offer? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Who do you think you are? And isn't it great to see God's loving kindness and his patience? Jesus is not deterred by her ignorance. He's patient as he receives her false accusations. And you know, he's the same way in your life. (laughs) How patient he was and born with us in our stubbornness as we rebelled against him. As we resisted his will and as we lived our own way and in our own wisdom. And I want to say this, church how we ought to emulate that as we talk to others in this town and community in your family it is easy to get irritated at people isn't it how many of you have been married over 40 years (laughs) it's easy to get irritated at each other It, it is easy to be reminded that they will never get it Apart from the grace of God and the work of God in their life, they will never get it. But how patient the Son of Man is with those whom he speaks with. And how patient you and I ought to be with those we interact in day in, day out. We ought to model this as we deal with those around us and as he calls us to go out and to share this same message of who the, what the gift of God is. calling 
others to trust, to see and trust and believe. Well, let me close with this. There's many things as I was thinking through this passage uh, brought me back to my attention when we had an EFCA, it's almost a tongue twister, a denominational um, conference just back uh, a month or so ago. One of the, the things that we did was this great strategy of how to reach our community. How can the church be more active collectively reaching the people around us and reaching our community? And so there was a lot of talking around tables and a lot of options and ideas going on and, and some interesting and some not so interesting. Uh, and some of the men who've been there, they know what I mean by that. I want to say this, God's greatest plan and his strategy in reaching the world around us, reaching our community, whether it's Pasico or Lake Pleasant, whether it's our missionaries, whatever it is, is just simply people knowing the gift of God with patience and long-suffering, intentionally taking it to the places God leads them. We could do more programs. I'm sure we could find some more programs to do. But when you go to work, when you go to the store and shop, when you go to the bank, when you deal with customers, when you, when you go out and volunteer, when you tip, whatever it is that you do, it, it, it is in that same, that same vein, that same example that we walk following the direction of God and we are graciously and, and intentionally carrying the gospel with us wherever we go. It is when you go to your volunteer groups as you, as you work at the fire department and as you work at the ambulance place or the library or whatever it is, they, the greatest impact in this community is, is God's people who know the gift of God, take it out with long-suffering and graciousness and share it to a world who does not know. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Isn't it? To an area that Jews wouldn't even go to. And to an area he would send his disciples back in Acts as we find that great revival that goes on there. They will follow his example. And so I just want to encourage you with that as we look at this next week. Again, bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this morning that we can gather together. And God, I thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the, just the few reminders that you've given to us in your word this morning. I pray that you would help us help us as we live going out of this room. Really, our mission starts as we walk through those doors or walk outside of those doors. The places we go, the school that we're in, the and the interaction that we have, it is all to live with the intent of, of taking that gift of God that you have opened our eyes to see to those who do not know, and that they may see, and in seeing that they may believe. I pray that you would give us fruit, bless the work and ministry of your servants in Jesus' name. Amen.